Thank you to all of you who played this morning. It was good to see others using their talents for the Lord. And is this working now? Just to make sure we get all our technology straight. If you could turn with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament is where we're going to be looking today. Now, a couple things before we actually get started, just to make sure we all have time to find it. I figured I'd at least announce that first. In years past, some of us have participated in uh, what is called the the Emmaus Bible Book Challenge. And, you know, the correspondence school at Emmaus Bible College is one of the largest in the world, if not the largest. It was started because after they started the Bible school, there was a lot of people whose lives did not permit them to come to a classroom. And so they wrote the courses in book form so that you could study them on your own. And then they break them down into lessons and you take the tests and you send them in. They grade them. They send them back. Now, the correspondence school is not for a degree. You can't get a bachelor's degree by doing it. But the same type of instruction that they were giving in the classroom when Emmaus started, those same professors are the ones who wrote the courses. And if you were to buy Bill McDonald's Believer's Bible Commentary, which goes over every single verse in the Bible and is one of the best-selling one-volume commentaries in the Bible, uh, excuse me, in, in, on the market today, you'll find that a lot of what is in these books that he helped write is in that commentary. So it's excellent material. The reason I'm telling you about it is because several of us have participated in this Bible book challenge in past years, and now's the time to sign up again. It's a 12-week course. This year's book goes over the, uh, the Bible book of the, the Acts of the Apostles. And um, if you are interested in signing up for that course... Uh, I have hung a a paper on the backboard. It asks for your name and your email address, and I will be in contact with you. I think it's like $5 to get the book. And what we'll do is starting in January, we'll have the books on hand. And uh, each, there's a lesson for each week, and it's a 12-week course. And I think it's once a month. You bring me the, the, the answer sheets that you completed up to that point. So I think it's the first four. And then I'll mail them in. They'll grade them and send them back. And then at the end of the whole thing, we'll find out how our assembly did in comparison to other assemblies like ours around the country who are also participating in the book challenge at the same time. So if you're interested in that, you can see me for more information or sign up on the backboard and we'll get in touch with you about that. The other thing I wanted to say is we saw the announcements. There were some folks who are uh, who called shut ins. Right. Uh, there's one particular name up there, Mrs. Hamilton. I-, I would say that there's probably a large amount of people here who don't even know who she is because for the past several years, she's only been here a few handful of times because her health is not very good. And she's so excited when she can come and she just kind of sit back there in that section over there. But I wanted to tell you this. It, it-, it said that any kind of calls or visits or correspondence, she appreciates so much. Every time that I pay her a visit, she talks about that. There are certain saints of you who send cards regularly. And maybe you haven't seen her in a long time. Maybe you don't even know where her house is, but the postman does. And he delivers those cards, and she is greatly encouraged by them. Some of the kids of the families in our chapels have drawn cards and sent them to her. And on two occasions now, she has said there was a particular day where uh, the people who were supposed to be with her, because she's supposed to have someone with her all the time, were not there. And uh, she was feeling particularly not only uncomfortable health wise, but very discouraged. And don't you know, the mailman came that day and there was about five or six cards from some of the kids in our chapel here. And she just kind of broke down crying. She was so encouraged and happy. And, uh, you know, we forget about that in our day of 
text and email uh, just how effective a short note can be. It's just dropped in the post office and uh, can reach a place where maybe we've never been before and actually cheer someone up. So let's pray for people like Mrs. Hamilton. I know Mrs. Haboyan is another one who's not been here in a long, long time. And uh, uh, we need to pray for these folks and encourage them as we can. And it's not even something we have to leave our homes to do. If, you, if all we can do is make a phone call or uh, drop them a note. So let's encourage ourselves with that. Uh, today, as it said, we're going to take a look at the life of Jonah. Now, it's not really a detour, you understand, from our, our, our curriculum, right? We're going through a series that's taking us through the history of the Old Testament. And, you know, if you were to take a look at the Bible and think of it like a bookshelf, right? Each of the books in our Bible were originally written individually. And, of course, they weren't written in book form like this. They were scrolls. And so they kept them in different bins in the synagogue, uh, where the Jews gathered so that then when they came, they could read them. And. Ah, <clears throat> but when they finally came to the time where they actually took those scrolls and cut them in strips and sewed one side together and they started calling it a book. Right. Suddenly they had to answer the question, well, what order should we put them in? You know, if they're all on the shelf, you can pick up anyone you want anytime you want. But but. If we're going to organize them and sew them into a particular order, how are we going to do that? And so the opening books of the Old Testament of our Bible are all history. Right. So starting with Genesis all the way until the book of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther to Esther. Those are all books of history. But then you begin to get to these books of poetry with the Psalms and Job and Proverbs, all books of wisdom. And so they're grouped together. And then you get more books, which we call the prophets. And so there's 12 major prophets, excuse me, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets, not because some are more important than others and some are majorly important. Some are minorly important. It's just it's how much paper they used. The major prophets used a major amount of ink and paper and the minor prophets used a minor amount, a small amount. Right. In fact, the book that we're going to study today, Jonah, was one of 12 of the minor prophets. And it was all written together in one scroll at one time. They called it the twelve. And so what we're what we've been doing is since we've been going through the history, we realize that some of these books of the prophets later on fall into the same time period as the books we've been studying. So while we're talking about that date and time, why not talk about the prophets who spoke to those people? And so today we come to the time of the book of Jonah. So if now if you found that book, we're going to go ahead and read it. It's four chapters long and um, uh, uh, we're going to. There's a lot here in this book. And so instead of going verse by verse to the whole thing, we'll be moving around in the book just a little bit. So let's read the whole thing for context. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, you'll get familiar real quick. For those who are, we'll just review. But this is Jonah starting in chapter one, verse one. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship 
and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they came to him and they said, please tell us for whose cause has this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and for what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous, tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and they said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah under the dry, dry land. Chapter three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant, for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? And that's the end. May God bless the reading of his word. To us this morning, Father, as we consider this man, this man of God, this man from history, a man that you used, that you helped in his own personal life who needed your help because he was a disobedient prophet. But Lord, we can't throw stones very, very far. We live in glass houses ourselves. We are a disobedient people. We don't do the things that we know we should do and. And yet you encourage us with a man like Jonah, a man that you gave second chances to, just like you gave Nineveh a second chance. And you give second chances and third chances and opportunities left and right for us to come back to you each day, to walk with you as we should and to to be your servants day by day in the world in which we live. So, Father, as we consider this book today, we just ask for your help that we might learn the lessons that you would have us to take home today and apply in our own lives and our relationship with you from the book of Jonah. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Interesting story, isn't it? Now, you know, ever since this book was written, the Jewish people who had it with them understood it to be the word of God. It really was not until the 18th century when people suddenly thought they were more wise and they started what is called critical theology. Now, you know, when people say that a a person of 
uh, Modern Science Today writes an essay and it has critical review. They mean that someone who's an expert in their field helps to go through what they've done to make sure what they've done is, is correct and, and to help that paper be more well written, that, that what is out there is, is validated to be true, right? But see, critical theology is not biblical theology. And so if you ever pick up a book that talks about the Bible from that perspective, you're going to realize very quickly that they don't believe the Bible to be true. And so the people in the 18th century, after 1800 years of people understanding these books to be the word of God, suddenly decided it's not true. God doesn't do miracles. These things are impossible. No reason to believe them. But, you know, for whatever reason, these types of uh, arguments seem to be the one that sticks in society. And so we have to answer the question ourselves. Is this a true story? But. Uh, as I've already said, you know, uh, the people who received the book from the very beginning understood it to be the word of God. They never doubted it. They understood that this was a true story that really happened. The people who don't believe the book will just tell you, well, you know, it's a nice parable, right? There's some lessons we can learn just like we can learn them from the fables. The Mother Goose rhymes sometimes have some good lessons. There's some proverbs by people. Not that they're scripture, but they're just good stories. And the, the, the Israelites needed to know those, those lessons too. And so this is just a book, like a, a parable or a metaphor. And the things in there are supposed to teach us things. But that's not the way it was originally received. And so there's no reason for us to fall into that. Do you know that Jesus himself believed this to be an absolutely historical and true story? If you doubt that, you can look at Matthew chapter 12. Now, if anybody knew what was true and what was false, it was our Savior, right? He himself is the Word of God. The expression of the heart and mind of God in living form has come to earth and has come to reveal God to us. And everything Jesus said and did was absolutely true. And he said, your word is truth. So everything in the Word of God is true. Now, speaking of Jonah, notice in Matthew chapter 12... Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove to us somehow that you are who you say you are. We want to see some more miracles. He'd already done plenty, but they wanted more signs. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Those are some strong words. We learn a lot about the Lord Jesus from this. You know, he knows, listen, not just what will happen in our lives. But all the potential options of what could happen with all the various options we have before us. He basically says, listen, if the people of Nineveh had lived today and saw what you see, they would have believed. Well, that's not a real possibility. It's just a what if, right? In our minds. But Jesus can say, no, wait a minute. I know these people because I was existing then. And I know their hearts and minds. And I know that if they had been born in this generation, seeing what you see, they would have repented. Because a greater than Jonah is here. And when Jonah came, they repented. And how much greater will your judgment be for rejecting the very word of God himself come in living flesh to speak to you today? That's what Jesus was saying. 
And not only did he know about and believe that they were real people and real events, but notice he said, the very prophet Jonah himself is the sign, a picture of me. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. This translation calls it. And in the same way, me, the son of God, the son of man will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He was predicting his death and the resurrection that would come after because the fish spit him back out and he had a brand new life after that, didn't he? He, uh, Some believe that Jonah actually died in in the belly of the fish. We don't know for sure that part, but we know he was there three days and three nights. You know, that's the reason people tend not to believe this book. They say that's impossible. Well, I'll tell you two things. Number one, if God says it's possible, it's possible. I don't care what science tells you. If God says it's possible, it's possible. But do you know that there are historical evidences of this very thing? Um, If you want to look up the story yourself, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible records uh, a journal entry from a whaling ship in 1891. And it says that they were out near the Falkland Islands and the lookout sighted a large sperm whale three miles away. And two boats were lowered in a short time and one of the harpooners was able to spear the creature. The second boat also attacked the whale, but it was upset by a lash of the tail of the, uh, of the whale so that its crew got uh, thrown into the sea. Now, one of them was drowned, but the other, James Bartley, simply disappeared without a trace. After the whale was killed, the crew set to work with axes and spades, removing the blubber. And they worked all day and part of the night. And the next day, they attached some tackle to the stomach, which they hoisted on deck. The sailors were startled by something inside it, which suddenly gave spasmodic signs of life because they'd already killed the whale. Right. And inside was found the missing sailor doubled up and unconscious. He was laid on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him. At the end of the third week, he had entirely recovered from the shock and resumed his duties. His face, neck and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment. But Bartley affirmed that he would have probably lived inside his house of flesh until he starved, for he lost his senses through fright and not through lack of air. He was so scared to be in that fish, he just passed out. But he said, when I finally came to, I, I, I could breathe. I was fine. But that really happened. And they lived to tell about it in 1891. Is it possible? Yeah, God says so. And we have a historical account that tells us so. So it's a, it's a book to be believed. The internal evidence is not like a parable. When Jesus told parables, he often said a certain man did this and a, a, a farmer did this, but he doesn't give names to fictitious people. Uh, the story of the wise, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, we believe to be a true story because he gave the names of the men. There are names of real people in this story. And so the book argues for its historical accuracy. And uh, I already read you that other account. So, um, let's get into the story itself. I, I would like to spend a few moments highlighting parts of the story, not for the sake necessarily of just teaching a history lesson, but to draw the lessons that we can from them. We could spend all day doing this. And that's why I wanted to make sure that whichever lessons we actually cover, we've got the whole story to draw from, uh, but we won't get through every verse together. Where did Jonah come from? Right. We know from the book of Second Kings that he lived in a town called Gath Hefer, which was here 
in Israel, right? This is the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, and this is the land of Israel. Now, he came up from the north near the Sea of Galilee, not far from Nazareth, in a town called Gath Hefer. Now, Nineveh was 600 miles away over here off the Tigris River, the capital of Assyria in their day. And so uh, they were enemies of the Israelites, right? They were going from country to country, conquering the world, and they were a vicious people. The stories of things the Assyrians did were, are absolutely atrocious. If I were to read them to you, you'd be disgusted. Just some examples. People that they conquered, they would sometimes take them and spear them through the belly and just stack them on poles still alive to writhe on the street sides to scare people. If they really wanted to intimidate people, they would tie them down and stretch out cords to each of their limbs and fillet their skin off of them alive and hang their skins on the walls. Just as a few examples, brutal brutal things that they did strictly just to intimidate their opponents. So when they came and surrounded your city, you just kind of gave up and often it worked. But in our day, Jonah was living here and Nineveh was over there. And as the story says, suddenly God says, I want you to go to Nineveh to preach to them. And so what does Jonah do? Well, uh, we're going to find out instead of going 600 miles northeast, he comes down here to a town called Joppa and hops on a ship that's going towards Tarshish, which no one knows exactly where it is, but we believe it's somewhere near Spain, possibly 3,000 miles away. Huh. A little disobedient, you'd say, right? Yeah. But those are the historical places we're going to be reading about. Nineveh, and here in Israel, and Gath Hefer, in the northern kingdom, and this place called Tarshish, totally the opposite direction. But the thing that strikes me about this story that I really like, notice verse 1 of the book. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Listen, the word of the Lord has come to us too. In that day, the book wasn't written in its entirety. And so God would speak to men. And so be encouraged. God desires to have a relationship with us and to speak to us. And he no longer goes around giving new revelation. The totality of what God wants to reveal to us, according to his moral will, the future and his prophecies, these are here. And the Bible tells us that he no longer speaks in prophets like he did in the Old Testament, but he now speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so what we learn as we look at the life of the Lord Jesus, what he revealed to mankind, all the things that we learn about God as we watch him live in 3D, uh, uh, his life before us, God still speaks. Unless you think this is an old dead book, the Bible says it's alive and powerful, sharper than the two-edged sword. And as you read it, it says it, it divides between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so sometimes we read it and it hurts us. Not because it reaches out and punches us in the face, but because it exposes the reality of who we are. And it's not a pretty sight sometimes. But the word of the Lord came in their day. And, you know, the day that they lived in was not a whole lot different than our own. Listen, we had countries like Assyria, a brutal and wicked people who worshipped foreign gods, cared nothing about the God of heaven. But, you know, the, even the Israelites themselves, they were idolatrous at that time. They had so far come from God that God had predicted, listen, if you don't turn around and, and repent and come back to me, the only true God, I'm going to let these foreign nations start conquering your nation and take away your cities. And they still wouldn't listen. So, you know what? God let it happen. And they dwindled down so far in size that finally, and this is what 2 Kings 14 says in Jonah's day, God finally sent Jonah to say, okay, listen, I didn't say I'd wipe you off the map. I just said I would let you be conquered, but you need a place to live. And so he let them take back some of their cities. And so although they were a disobedient people, they were seeing some signs of what seemed to be, can we use the word revival? 
And so they began, although they were a disobedient people, to feel a little better about themselves. Is that where the national pride came from in Jonah, that he didn't want to go talk to the Ninevites? I can't say. The Bible doesn't exactly spell it out. But there's a good lesson here for us. We live in a day where people don't care about the word of God. And yet God cares about them. And they may be fiercely opposed to the people of God, just like the Assyrians were. And yet God says, go. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. That's a hard word. Here we have people telling us, get ready. Persecution's coming. The agenda is out there. The activists are coming to target our churches, to target our schools, to target all these things, to attack the word of God, to take away the freedoms that our country's enjoyed for the whole entirety of our existence. And that's true. But what's our stance? Are we so backslidden in our own hearts? Have we come so far that we don't realize how far we've fallen? Have we been the salt and the light in our own neighborhoods, in our own country that we should be? In days gone by, we as God's people dropped the ball when it came to slavery. By and large, we were silent as abortion ran rampant in our country. We've had some activists. And a lot of us were afraid to join the activists. But we were silent. We haven't rejected what we believe of God's word. But I look at Jonah in his day and I feel conviction. I recently at the Workers and Elders Conference up in uh, Iowa just a few weeks ago, they were uh, they had a session about the authority of God's word and having a healthy doctrine And Dave McLeod, who is a professor at Emmaus Bible College, read a quote, and I I, I did my utmost to get a hold of that quote because it really struck me. It's a quote from Francis Schaeffer. Many of you may remember his name if you're old enough, right? In the 70s and 80s, this man, he studied people. He studied society and he studied God's word. And he began to predict the direction of society from what he was seeing. And now, 40 years later, after writing a book called How Should We Then Live, it's more accurate today than it was when he wrote it. But listen to what he said to us as Christians. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides that is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You hear what he's saying, right? They're attacking marriage in our day. To say that it's not just a man and a woman, as God has said when he instituted the very institution. And I don't know that any one of us in here have ever denied that point. But are we standing for it? If that's where Satan is raging his battle today and we don't engage the battle where he's fighting. 
then we are fleeing and abdicating our responsibility. To preach it in here, hey, we're all on the same side. But we live in a world that's taking a stand against God and against his world, his word. And so we have to be steady on all the battlefronts and not just the ones that are comfortable. See, the Israelites, they had withdrawn into themselves. Too often we withdraw into ourselves. I appreciate the fact that we're trying to find ways to get out of these walls into the community, both as a corporate group and individually, right? Most of them aren't going to come in here. The the, the Assyrians weren't coming to Jonah saying, tell us what we can do about our sin. God said, Jonah, arise and go. Pretty clear instruction. We got the same instructions. Go into all the world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And yet, so many of the nations are coming to us. So, Jonah arises and goes the opposite direction. To flee from the presence of the Lord. Doesn't that sound so silly? How do you flee from the presence of God? The God who is everywhere. You can't. And here the prophet of God tries. Let me go stick my head in the ground. Pretend it's not happening. It's obvious to us as parents when our kids do it. It's obvious to the world when we do it. And we can't run from God. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 139, David says, look, if I go to the, the farthest part of the sea, to the bottom of the ocean, to hell itself, you're still there. The darkness is not dark to you. It's as bright as the noon sun. You see everything. You see what's in my heart, my mind. There's no way to run from God. But why do we try? Why do we try? Jonah tried. And so he shamefully went down to Joppa to get onto this ship. Now, here's something scary. It says he got to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. How often do we take the easy way out and we say, Lord, do you want me to do this? Well, if they say yes, I know that that's your will for me and I'm just going on. Well, what if Jonah did that? Say, Lord, okay, if you don't want me on that ship to Tarshish. Right. Don't let there be any tickets. You know, let them be sold out. God could have done that. Right. Pretty easy for God. But there was a place there. He let Jonah buy a a ticket to get on that ship. And this is the challenge to us as believers. Right. Circumstances. Sometimes we let circumstances well, how, can, how should I say this? We'll use circumstances to justify the things we really want to do. Right? God says to go talk to my neighbor and I, I haven't done it. Well, you know, they're not really home very often. You know, I got my list. We all do. Of the things that God has called us to do, that we know we're supposed to do, and yet circumstances, we let them... We, we deceive ourselves, really, don't we? Um... Interestingly enough, it's circumstances that God uses to get Jonah's attention. Isn't that interesting, right? He goes down into this ship and he's asleep down there, but God sends a storm. He goes and he gets the captain. Says, what else can we throw out of the ship? Hey, what are you doing here? Wake up. 
Call out to your God, the captain of the ship, the mariners that are all around him. They, they, they are saying, what are you doing here? What do you mean you're running from God? You're, you're, you serve the Hebrew God? Now we're in real trouble, right? So, so God uses circumstances. It, let, let, let me put it this way. When we refuse to listen to the word of God, then he'll use life circumstances to try to get our attention. He'll use the people around us. He'll use the events of life. But we're not listening to his primary means, and so he's got to use something else. And so we need to start asking ourselves when, uh, when things happen, Lord, why is this happening? Are you trying to tell me something? Am I doing the things I should be doing? Because we all know this too, right? Paul was on a ship that had a storm that wrecked the whole entire ship, but he was there because God was sending him to go preach to, uh, uh, um, to Caesar in Rome. And so we just need to ask ourselves, not all the time circumstances are because of our disobedience. Look at Daniel, right? He was obedient to God, found himself in the lion's den. Look at Joseph. He was obedient to God, found himself in jail for a false accusation. All right. So hard times come, even if it's not our fault. But we've got to ask ourselves the hard questions, don't we? So here's Jonah and he's down in the ship and the sea is just totally tempestuous against them using the word of God. And God is trying to get his attention. Let me just notice a few things about where Jonah's at. Number one, it says he paid the price. When we run away from God, there's a price to be paid. More than we want to pay. More than we meant to pay. But there is a price to be paid. Notice the, the general tenor of the direction. It's interesting. This is not something to get too preachy about. But he says he went down to Joppa. That's a directional thing. But he went down into the ship. And after he'd gone down into the lowest part of the ship, he laid down and was fast asleep. Isn't it interesting that so often the description of the things that we do, it's a downward spiral. Right? And so if we find ourselves in the downward spiral, another reason to ask, Lord, is this the enemy opposing what I'm trying to do to serve you? Or am I being disobedient in some way? What are the circumstances trying to show me? And Paul sometimes said, no, this is this is the spirit of God hindering us from going there because he wants us to go this way. And he redirected. It was God. We, we, there's no formula. Just kind of plug it in and get the answer. Oh, no, we have to seek God on the issue. So Jonah went down into the ship. But God was using circumstances to get his attention because he wasn't listening to the word of God. But the word of God is powerful, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah and uh, it's through the word of God that he made the world. His word is proven. We're born again by the word of God. Let us return to his word that we might hear from him and get his direction. Now, the, the fish, it's the white elephant of the story, right? Let's just say. The word for fish is not really fish. It's a great sea creature or sea monster. And so some people, translations call it a whale. Some people call it a fish. And so let's not stumble over the fish. Let's not, let's not that become the stumbling block of the story. Uh, but it says God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And so it did. And he went into the belly of the fish. And it was there when it finally says chapter 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. When we finally hit bottom. There's only one other place to look up, but we don't have to wait that long. We don't have to. 
Let's turn to God sooner. And that's what he did. He called out to God. He truly repented. He realized what he had done. And he said, Lord, I will pay what I vowed. And so look at chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish. Did you know the Lord speaks fish? He spoke to the fish. And the fish obeyed a lot better than Jonah and probably than you and me. He went close enough to shore and spit Jonah out onto the dry land. Probably he was bleached white like that guy in 1891. I would pay attention to a guy coming into my streets bleached white. But... The word of the Lord, I love this, chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can I just say to you today, whether you're a believer who knows the Lord is your Savior and you have turned away from the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord will come to you a second time. He will give you another chance. I love that about God. I used to love that about college. No matter how bad I did one semester, hey, new semester, you start over, right? But with God, every day we can start over. Every time we fall, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that is a promise that God has made to us as believers. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you don't know for sure that you're a child of God and on your way to heaven. Listen, you're still alive today like the Ninevites. And God said, yes, there's a judgment coming, but there's an escape. There's an escape. There was an escape in their day. If they repented and turned to the Lord. I love this part. When the king himself realizes the evil of their society and he says, I will even take off my kingly robes and put on the sackcloth and ashes. I will seek God's forgiveness. Listen, look at what he says in verse nine. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? He had no guarantee As far as he knew, God may still punish him. But he said, Lord, we realize what we did is wrong and we're sorry. We we, we realize we've done all the wrong things. And they threw themselves in the mercy of God. But even then he said, we don't know. He, He may still destroy us. And you know what? He rightly could. But don't you know we have promises? Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. For if anyone will call upon the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Not maybe, will not perish and be destroyed, but will have everlasting life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And if you're here today, that's you. You're in this world and you're a sinner like me, like Jonah, like the Ninevites. But God forgave them. God forgave Paul, who himself he calls the chiefest of sinners, so that God could use him as an example of how far the grace of God can go. If God can forgive people like that, he can forgive us. Because he's promised to. And he's given us some examples. And he did forgive the people of Nineveh. God saw the way that they turned him. And he said, you know what? That disaster will come, but not today. He waited until their country departed from God again. And and, and the evil... Filled up so much that God said, okay, now it's time I have to bring that judgment. And praise God, he's a long-suffering God, isn't he? And this is what frustrated Jonah. Isn't this amazing? We often think of the God of the Old Testament because we see how great he is and how he cannot stand sin and must punish sin. We get the idea that he is a unyielding judge that is just looking for opportunity to crush people under the guilt of their sin. But look what Jonah accuses God of in chapter 4. Jonah's angry because God forgave the Ninevites whom he hated. So he prays to the Lord and says, now this is hopefully not a picture of our prayer life. 
<laughs> he's kind of yelling at God, right? But you know, God can handle it. If you're upset about something, and in your honesty, you can express that to God. But I would encourage you to realize who you're talking to. He can handle it, but be ready for his answer. Because he will answer. But he says, okay, Lord, isn't this what I said before I left my house? For I knew that you're a gracious and merciful God. Now, this disgusted Jonah at the time. But listen to what he's saying. Lord, I knew even from all the things I'd already heard about you, you're a gracious God. You are merciful. Slow to anger. Abundant in loving kindness. You're willing to turn away from all that calamity. I didn't want you to turn away from that calamity on the Ninevites. Yeah, give it to me. But not them. That's the God we serve. He delights in granting forgiveness to the sinner who repents and turns to him. To the child of God who repents and turns to him. And you know, Jonah went and he obeyed. He preached the message. 40 days and you guys are dead. Not a whole lot of grace in that message. But God showed grace. And he showed grace to Jonah. You know, we can obey. Okay, I'll go talk to him. And, and, and we can do the outward things, but God still cares about our heart. He cares about people. And I'm praying that God will help me to have a softer heart towards different people. They'll think more about them and their future than the awkwardness of me trying to engage them about the Lord. Because if the Lord comes back today, most of the people around us are in a terrible, terrible situation. They're going to hell forever. One thing we can't do in heaven is preach the gospel. Now's our chance. And so here was Jonah, up, more upset about the plant that he didn't do anything for than the fact that God used him to... Re- biggest, biggest revival in history. You know, they say that Nineveh was probably 600,000 strong at this time. The walls were 100 feet high, 50 feet wide, seven and a half miles long with 15 gates in it. And full of wickedness. It took three days to, to wander through the city. But on the first day of his preaching, the city turned to the Lord. You know what that tells me? It's not too late for our country. It's not too late for us. But it's got to start with us. And we have to pray. Pray for our country. Pray for those in authority. Because you know what? If it was just the people on the street, I don't think none of it would have been saved. But this came from the top down. And our revival needs to start with us. I'd say it probably needs to start from the top down here too. We in leadership need to be before the Lord about these things to know how to help guide us as an assembly of believers. We as God's people need to be in prayer over our country, over our our cities. Because it's not too late. He's the same God. It says it right back there, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I believe that. But may God take it out of our heads, bring it into our hearts. So that we can be who he wants us to be. Uh, that we cannot flinch and shy away from where the battle is raging. Do I want to run into that battle? Not really. But, you know, if that's the point where the, the enemy is attacking, that's the point 
where those he's deceived to stand in his camp can be rescued. But if we just run and hide, nothing we can do. Father, as we consider these things, we thank you that a greater than Jonah has come. And the lessons that we see through him, we realize Jesus came to do greater. He's turned the world upside down once. He started a whole new movement of those whose lives were impacted by the reality of Jesus Christ. And he said, listen, arise and go. And Lord, it's not just about going and saying the message because Jonah did that and his heart was still wrong. And Lord, we want you to do something in our hearts that that would revolutionize our lives, our families, our church, this city, this country, and this world. And we don't know what you'll do, but we know you have a plan and you want to use us in that plan. And so like David, we would say, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you just show us? Show us the areas where we're being like Jonah. We're going in the wrong way. We've justified our actions and done it thoroughly. And yet, Lord, whether it's through your word, through one another, through the circumstances of life, would you just kind of bring the truth before us in a way that would bring us to conviction? Not that we would feel guilty and run away from you, but that we would draw near and say, Lord, I'm yours. All of me. I'm a living sacrifice. And I'm laying myself on that altar to be consumed for your purposes. But Lord, you've said it would be a living sacrifice. Not like those in the Old Testament that they burned up and they were dead, but you want us to live for you. And so we ask that you'd help us to do that. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't even know how they can know for sure their sin is forgiven. They feel like more like the people of Nineveh. Would you help them in their own hearts to call out to you, knowing that you do hear and that you do promise to forgive if they turn to Jesus Christ who gave his life for them. And so we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.